0: This episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere... Is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to, and you know all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know if you can get five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever. And you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode.
1: We can't even get started now because we're already talking about it. You know, when did you start? Like you've been sober since uh, usually I don't know this answer, but I saw your shit October of last year, right? Correct. You got a little over a year now. So which congrats on that, bro. That's fucking You know, I know how hard yeah, that thanks. first year is um especially because you're back in your old stomping grounds like you're in jersey where you used to run around um Mm -hmm. when in your recovery because you started your recovery october 2000 this you know i don't know about your other ones we'll get to that but when you started this recovery when did you start making memes and shit because your instagram you know obviously blew up at some point you got like you know 13,000. that's fucking awesome so i mean I figure you had to have had something blow up along the way. When did you start making like content for like being in recovery? Um,
2: So basically when I first went to treatment, I was like 26 years old. It was in 2014 and I got out of a 45 day program and I went to a halfway house for a couple months. And then from there, I took the suggestion to move into an Oxford house and it was right in Magnolia right by, you know, by Audubon, right by uh, Camden, basically. And I move in there, and it was a solid group of guys. Like, we were all younger. And um, from day one, like, my buddy added me to this Facebook group, and they made, like, crude and and dark humor memes, and a lot of them were, like, drug-related. And it just really resonated with me. Like, it was something to laugh at, so you could, like, poke fun at, like, you know, bad things that happened in our lives you know like stuff related to drug use and recovery and stuff and it was a big facebook group it was called jesus died for our memes right <clears throat> and um
1: great fucking name
2: yeah we 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 really liked it it eventually got shut down obviously due to facebook's like um how they delete things yeah and after that, I would toy it around maybe after I had like a year clean that time. And I would make like these little pictures with captions and stuff, you know, like the impact font, like the real old style memes. And they were funny. And, you know, just a bunch of my friends, you know, we would send them to each other. We would not post them anywhere. And then I had through just knowing people through Facebook, I got added to this group chat with people who were actual creators. And it was like, um, really, most people know them like larger uh, meme pages related to recovery. And I had posted some of my memes in there. And they were all like, dude, these are trash. Like, these are terrible. They like basically kicked me out of the group. And my one friend, Nick, uh, who's now one of my best friends, he had a couple years clean at the time. And he dm me and we started talking and he was basically giving me pointers and saying, you know, try and use this font. It's not as abrasive, you know, try and use uh, different types of apps and stuff like that. And his page is called Dark Side Spoon.
1: And I've seen his post through you. Yeah, you share a shit a lot. Yeah, I share fucking, his and he shares mine. So you guys just collabed with a bunch of videos, right?
2: Yeah, guys, I drove. <clears throat> yeah, I actually drove down. He lived in Potomac, Maryland, outside D.C. And I drove down there for a weekend. We made oh, a bunch of videos. You'll yeah, well, have drive um,
1: up here sometime then too. What we'll the to fuck yeah. around? Yeah, because I'm not 100%. that I'm not that far in the other direction. <laughs> yeah, Dude, yeah. That's
2: something related to recovery. Like I used to drive around to meetings. You know, we'd go to speaker jams. We'd go, yeah. You know, out of area meetings. So this is kind of the same type of fellowship
1: and for me. And um, it's and it's and that's what it is too. Like it's it's proven that. And I know we're both into programs and working programs like we've kind of talked about that. Like, you know, I, I think the steps have been amazing for me. Um, I use the steps daily still to this day. And but also TikTok is there all day. That kind of recovery support is there all day. If you're feeling down, you can hop on there and start getting some messages <laughs> without getting into your car and going to a meeting. And yeah. people don't realize how important that can be sometimes to get you out of your head because as addicts that's where we're fucking stuck when we're not talking let's be real if we're not talking out loud we're stuck in our head most of the time and trying to process shit in our minds that's why we always got high was to escape what was going on in our heads you know and i'm talking for myself but i know a lot of people can relate you know to me saying that including yourself because you're like yeah man (laughs) that's me You know, and especially, you know, people don't realize I've talked to people from Jersey, but like growing up in our type of area, you know, with small towns, everyone knows everyone. You get arrested. The entire town fucking knows about it, even if you haven't talked to anybody in years, right. you know, and we don't even have to get into where we grew up exactly. But I've talked about it. We're not that far. We're a couple of miles from each other yeah. and we didn't know each other. That's hilarious. You know, you're the second person, third that I found in random places on social media to do my show, that lived within miles of me, and I had no idea who they were, and we were using at the same time, the same drugs at the same time, yeah. and except for one dude though, the one dude I talked to, he was on my show last week, um, and he graduated from my high school, but in
0: 1969. Oh wow! <laughs> so like,
1: found an old head. Yeah, yeah, definitely found an old timer, and he left AA, and now he does podcasts trashing AA, so, you know, I did his podcast, but we didn't trash it because I I run AA meetings, so we talked about why I left my old group, because to me, AA and NA, there's great fellowships, and then there's shitty ones, you know, and then the shitty ones can give people bad impressions on what the program actually is um but either way when did you get into because like I found drinking at 11 you know because in Jersey we walk around towns we start drinking early I feel like we go to woods basements when did you start
2: um well actually I'm a little different from my friend group I mean so it's me and my brother my brother's two and a half years younger than me and you know he started drinking and and smoking weed at an early age but for me I got into music really heavily, right? And when I was growing up, you know, after school, like my parents paid for private art lessons and private music lessons for me, you know, starting in elementary school. So mm-hmm. I got really into being creative and things like that. And then after middle school, I joined a band with a couple friends. Uh, I played bass guitar and, you what know. kind of what kind of music? Uh, so we went from in like, you know, ninth it, grade
1: in Jersey and ninth grade because we're the same age. We've talked about that like somewhere yeah. else. We're both thirty five in Jersey and ninth grade. The my first guess is you're in a pop punk band.
2: Yeah, we we covered Blink-182. <laughs> we covered like some forty one. Good Charlotte, stuff yep. like that. Yeah, I probably uh, saw you then, in
1: some random garage or basement for all I fucking know. <laughs> yeah, well, that band probably not.
2: But after like probably tenth grade we started to listen to a little more harder stuff, a little more metal. And we actually formed a straight edge hardcore band. So I was like,
1: you were uh, in a straight edge hardcore band in high school.
2: Yes. So, you know, I took like Sharpies and drew like X's on my hands, which meant like, you know, straight edge. No, I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do drugs. And,
1: you're ripping nicotine now with.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, like I'm hitting it, like, we're, we're know,
1: a fucking. We're like, on a recovery. We're on a recovery <laughs> podcast talking about all of our drinking and drugging. As you're ripping nicotine, like yeah, I was yeah. straight edge.
2: <laughs> I just smoked a cigarette, like I'm drinking yeah. an, an energy drink. Um, but yeah, I just I had a really closed-minded view. I really looked down upon people who did substances like that, especially my peers in school. And I had this like elitist. Uh, view of myself because I didn't do those things, right? And I still would go to like house parties and see people getting drunk and losing their inhibitions. And like, I it started to turn from like looking down on those people to like looking at the guys I knew who were shy and were drinking, and then going up to girls and then going to like bedrooms and parties with the girls and able to talk to them. And I was very, um, I was extroverted with people I knew and trusted and family, but when it came to like girls or people I didn't know, I was very shy, right? So eventually maybe around once I was like late 17, 18 years old, my senior year, I'd started drink. And once I found that and I was able to talk to people, like it was a wrap from there. So I drank um, at parties, but I smoked weed pretty much every day of my senior year, um, up until I was about 23. And then that's when I, uh, was at work one day hungover and a girl was like, Hey, take this. It'll help your hangover. And it was like a, a school bus. It was like a little perk ten.
1: Yeah. I fucking it, love it, that. We're talking just cause you said school bus. So I, I talked to this dude yesterday from Philly and he said a bus. Now I've talked to so many people on this show, right? Like there's been like 60 episodes out now. And I mentioned school buses and bananas to people and they don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. And yeah. the dude yesterday was like, oh, yeah, I picked up some buses and I started cracking up because that is definitely an our area thing that yeah. we called so far that I found. And I've asked a lot of people. School buses were the fat ones and banana were the skinny tents. Yeah.
2: And the you Percocet brand.
1: And the Percocets. Yeah. Yes, that's. It's very important to know they, the 10 slash 325s or whatever the fuck. It's been years, and I still remember that fucking shit. Yeah. Like, you know, how many times do you, like, Google imprints? And you know what I mean? Like, you're Googling, like, the imprint, the circle, and the color to see, like, the pill identifier to make yes, sure that you got a real Roxy and shit. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm going um, <laughs> on. I'm like, Watson 725. What does this mean? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's a 7.5. All right, All right.
1: I'll take it. Yeah, let me just yeah. slow this on down. Um. So, yeah, but so... But it's ironic, though, because the buses were the first thing that, like, got me, too. And two school buses, and I still never been that high, you know, to this day. And it was October 2008. It was like the Phillies were about to go into the World Series. I was just turned 22, and I went hard drinking 21. You know what I mean? Like, five, six nights a week, I was at the the bars. I was even around your area all the time. You know how it is, like, the, the theme nights. So yeah. Thursdays, I was at Adelphias, you know what I mean? Or Hollywood Diner and the fucking that shit over oh, there. Wednesdays. Wednesdays. Wednesdays was college, that's what no? it was. That's what yeah. it was. Wednesdays was Adelphias. I think Thursdays was Hollywood, or I would go to Coastline and Cherry Hill on Thursday. I was going oh, everywhere, yes. bro. And then eventually by twenty-two, I was exhausted of drinking so much and it wasn't working. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, you're going out? I'm like, nah, I'm just going to stay at home. It's a Friday night. And they're like, oh, I got some school buses for you, 10 bucks a piece if you want them. And my yeah. theory was, all right, I'll take two. You know, take two of anything. Just I'll take two. And I never was that high again the day in my life. Within weeks, I was sniffing 30s every day, you know, because I was so in love with that feeling. And I'm going to ask now, how did you feel with that 110?
2: Um, I mean, I was puking. I threw up in the bathroom at work. But then after that, it was like, I don't know. A lot of people talk about it, and it feels kind of corny when I hear other people say it. But, like, I'm sure you can relate. It was like like I had arrived. Like, I felt, uh-huh. like, not to be, like, crude, but, like, my whole body was, like, nutting. Like, I was like, dude, yep. it was... It was great. So then every day I was like, and, yo, and can I have and one of that? Need,
1: <laughs> But people need to understand that, though, because the, the non-addicts and alco- non-alcoholics and normies that watch or listen to this, like, it is a big deal when that happens. It is yeah. literally, like, I describe it as, you know, we get three loves in our life. That's my first love. That yeah. was a serious, toxic relationship that I had for a decade Right. And toxic relationships are ones that we jump back into. We always had the relapses. We always find the good times, the excuse, the warm blanket, the way that they held me, the way that they looked at me. You don't know what it's like when we're alone, bro. No one. They don't tell me things I don't want to hear. You know, that was seriously a first love. And I I had a breakup song. I had a breakup letter and everything to that shit three and a half years ago. I haven't touched them in. I had a relapse with drinking, but I haven't touched pills in three and a half years because that. I am so afraid of that shit anymore. Yeah. But for ten years, that was the love of my life. Well, also, I, people you know, our
2: age man, like it's they were real back then. We didn't have
1: fears of you know, I know. you know, yeah. whatever is in the pills nowadays. So. My fe- my fears and addiction weren't for overdosing. I was never afraid I was going to overdose and die. Um, because I I honestly never did dope. I stuck with pills for ten years because I loved them that much. So I would spend more money to have pills every day for that long. I would figure the fuck out. Um, So, you know, they were going to be there. But the thing is, though, like, I knew what I was going to get every single time. I knew from my dealers. I knew the A's, what I was going to happen with them. I knew what's going to happen with the M's. I knew if I took V's, my face was going to get blotchy. But fuck it. I don't care. You know, and I knew which ones were which. But now with the fentanyl, like, I don't know what's going to be in there. The only time I was ever afraid I was going to die in addiction was when I was shitting, and that is for <laughs> real. Like, that, that yeah. I, I did not want to be the fat fuck that died like Elvis on the toilet, and it scared the shit out of me every single week that I took my shit once a week, you know, because that's yeah. how it is. You you forget that you haven't shit in a week, you're like, oh, this is going to be really bad. I got to sit down and see what happens, and then you sit down for two hours, and you fucking push a softball out. Yeah. So, like, you know, I was always afraid I was gonna die taking a shit and be found on the toilet. But nowadays, I'm afraid I would die just from snorting one. Cause yeah. I don't, you know, I think I could spot a fake M box if I saw it, but I can't promise myself that. Yeah. Not right now. I have the choice, but if I get high again, I lose that choice, and I'm not. Well, fucking... here's the
2: other thing, right? If you, if your recovery gets to a point where you feel like it's a good idea to do one more and you're presented with a pill in your face, you know, your convictions are going to be so low or, like, you're not relying on your higher power. Like, I'm going to do it regardless of what it is, you know? Yeah. By the time you <clears throat> by the time you seek that out and somebody's like, yeah, they're straight from the pharmacy, da-da-da. Oh, yeah, it's crumbling because it was in my pocket. Like, I'm not going to care. I'm going to just do it and be like, ah, we'll see what happens, you know? Yeah,
0: like,
1: I've done worse. Yeah. You know, you know? so now you're 23. So we're at 2009. Yeah. Roxy's are phasing out because they're just getting rid of by then. Roxy yeah. is through the roof, though. They're fucking everywhere in 2009. They were yeah. still $20 a pop then, too. Um. So bad it depends, depends on it who really you talk to. Bad. I got them for yeah. 20 a piece, and I resold them for 25 so you know i i was getting them i got in early with some like i said my two main like i said before with you my two main dealers i had for 10 years oh, I, only, okay. I only dealt with two guys really there was a third guy and he was in camden and he was he would be at a bar in camden during the day he was mm-hmm. an alcoholic who spent his day at the bar so if you want it shit during the day you go to camden and you see and you grab what you need and you get the fuck out of town. I drove an old cop car in a Camden <laughs> all the time. Oh, my God. An unmarked cop car. <clears throat> and I'm in the middle of the day in the hood pulling up to a biker bar to meet this dude. And he passed away a couple of years ago from um, liver failure. He, he was an alcoholic. He drank every day at the bar and stole pills. That's what he did. Yeah. But 23 was a rough time around 2009. Everyone, everything was crashing. No one had jobs. So, like, that was a, what was, what were you doing when you found that now, though? You were off?
2: Let me say, so 08 was the Phillies World Series. I was delivering pizza at a small pizza place. Um, My pill usage was not crazy at the time. I mean, I would do them like on the weekends and, you know, smoke during the week. And then 2010 is when it really started to take hold. I'd worked at a liquor store. And there was another kid I linked up with, I became close with, and he did 30s. So I started doing them with him. And it really just started snowballing. I mean, we met people who were going to Florida and back once a week with, you know, thousands of pills. You yeah. know, so I was able to get them for $12, $13 a piece. And then I would just get as many as I could with my whole paycheck and then sell them to other people, you know, for 20 25 And that – it's not like I – really sold drugs it's not like I was a kingpin I was literally just supporting my addiction you know yeah and um I never really had thoughts of quitting until 2011 and my brother at the time was shooting dope and you know doing a massive amount of cocaine and I was living it's weird because when I look think back on my life and you ask me that question like it's such a blur like I have to use things like you know, the world series or like what job, me too. I was
1: at. where was Perfect. I living at the time? You know, yeah. Xanax fucked things up for me big time, you know, wow. and if Damn. it wasn't for seen. me living all over the place, like I've had 30 different addresses since I graduated high school. So yep. that's how I pinpoint shit now is where was I? That's always the first thought in my head. Where was I living then? And then yeah. I can get the year. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I get it, man. I get it. So and yeah, your, your brother, he was, which, were you guys close? Like my brother and I were three years apart. You know, I'm older by three years, um, almost exactly three years. Um, And we weren't close growing up. I always said, I literally just said this, that I was his best man, you know, a couple weeks ago at his wedding. And I literally said in my speech, like we were like Corey and Sean Matthews, you know, like we did not get along growing up. You know, we, we could not have butted heads more growing up. But we traveled together, we did shit together as a family, but we couldn't have been more different as people. And then in our 20s is when we became friends. You know, 25, my fiance committed suicide and my brother and I moved to North Carolina on a whim. And I was trying to escape my head in 2015 and my addiction and her her suicide. So I ran to North Carolina. He came with me. We had jobs and we became best friends. And but it took until our mid-20s for us to like become even friends and not just brothers, if that makes sense. So but yeah, That's go ahead. That's Ar- an
2: interesting dynamic because we're pretty much the same ages apart. Um but during that time, I mean we did hang out, like we I would drive him to the city to get what he wanted, and I always worked, I always had a job. Uh and at this point <clears throat> I left the liquor store and i applied for a job at a company my mother used to work at and they hired me into a middle management position Um, i had a great resume whether or not the things on the resume were legitimate is we won't get into that but you know they really gave me a shot and i had managed a department of like 24 25 people um i ended up you know connecting with the one other guy who did perks in the office And so I'm getting high. My brother is doing whatever he did. He liked to, you know, support his addiction in different ways, you know. And um, we didn't really get along. It was more just like two people who were using together. And I looked at his addiction as he's a junkie. You know what I mean? Like I get what I need from people who get it from the doctor. So even though I'm not prescribed it, You know, I'm thinking, well, these are pharmaceuticals. He's doing street drugs. He has a problem. And uh, it culminated when me and him decided to rob a family member. You know, we knew they weren't home. We broke into their house. We stole literally everything from them. And uh, we didn't get caught for about a year. But then once our whole family found out what had happened, um, they came to me because they knew that I was messing up and I took the fall for it and uh Cause
1: you were the responsible one
2: right in so their they're eyes like, you know right. I'm
1: not to say your brother's not responsible but I'm saying in their eyes they see you as being the one with the job at all at all times that shows up and you know because if you're a junkie like your brother was the junkie and you weren't like you said You know, then he would probably appear to be or not show up for family events a lot. And you would probably get a bunch of pills in you and show up high and sweating. Yeah. That's what I fucking did. I was showing up high and sweating. So that you
2: weren't too sweaty. (laughs) But you weren't sick, you know what I mean? that sweaty
1: thing was
0: a problem, too, though. That, that sweaty thing that came on, like... with This the- episode is sponsored by MJ's Progress, Not Perfection Meeting Center Association. We are in our meeting center where we do all these meetings for mental health and addiction. I can do this podcast anywhere. I can do this at home. I can do this in a closet. I can do this in a basement. It doesn't matter. All I need is somebody else to talk to about addiction and recovery. What I can't do from anywhere is help people with their addiction and their mental health problems. So if you can help out, you know, we do have a Venmo, we have a Cash App, we have a PayPal, we have an address you can send a check to. And, you know, all the money that gets donated goes towards rent, goes towards keeping the lights on, and goes towards keeping the internet on. So please, you know, if you can get 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, it doesn't matter. Anything you can is so appreciated. If you are a local business, if you're a national business, whatever... And you want to be a part of what we're doing, you know, you can reach out to me and we can talk about how you can be a sponsor. But I'll let you get back to the episode. But
1: yeah, the sweats that I would get. I remember the first time I ever performed stand up was at Helium in Philly in the, de- in the dead of winter. And it was my first time performing. I had walked from the speed line over there. So it's like a half mile walk. It's not far. I'm yeah. a big dude. Yeah. But I walked up and I was pouring sweat. Cause I was ripped out of my mind. Right. So the doorman's like, you're going to be okay to go on stage. Like you, are you sick? <laughs> like, he's like, no, I just, I'm, I'm sweating from walking. He's like, it's 25 degrees out. <laughs> like you shouldn't be sweating like that from walking in 25 degrees. Yeah. How long did you walk for? Like from the speed line. <laughs> like." But at least as big guys, like we could
2: at least say like, look, man, like I'm like a I'm, bigger well, that's, dude. Well,
1: that's what it ended up being. It's like, what do you want me to tell you, man? I'm fucking fat. Yeah. And he started laughing. He goes, "Have a good night, buddy." Like and, he, and then that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, "Oh yeah, he is fat. Let him in." <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first time performing. I should have just told that story on stage, but I was again a junkie, but didn't yeah. I wasn't accepting the fact that I was a junkie. I just I need this to get on stage so that I'm not curled over the fucking stool while I'm on stage because my stomach hurts so bad. Yeah. You know. So, but any you guys Rob then was it possession stuff or money stuff?
2: Oh yeah, it was just money. It was a really it was an older family member, you know, and I knew that they had a bunch of this is it might sound crazy, but to me, I knew that what it was worth. But it was a whole um uh dining room set of silverware. It was sterling silver, it was really old, and I knew the scrap value for sterling was really high at the time. So we took all those and, you know, we broke apart the walls with a sawzall and took copper out of the kitchen. And this was like a family member who was declining in health and was at a different family member's house. And um, it just it got to the point where I end up going to my family and telling them my brother's getting high. Right. And we do an intervention on him. Uh, My parents sent him to California to Passages Malibu. So and, you're
1: getting you're getting high and you're like, yo, bro's getting high though. Yeah. I'm so, taking the fall. I did it with him, but he's the one that needs help.
2: Yeah, it was one of it was one of the bigger regrets that I have was throwing him under the bus. But looking back on it now, it's definitely like, you know, I want to take all the spotlight off me and the bad things I'm doing. Look at how worse this person is.
1: And it could have saved his life.
2: Yeah, I mean it could have, but he's been he's been to Man, probably 30, 40 treatment centers, you know, detoxes, stuff like that. And I just kind of, I was the the son who didn't want anybody to know that I was using, right? So I tried to maintain the job. Like you said, I was the person who's, oh, he's always working, you know, he's fine. He doesn't ask for money. And on the other side of the coin, he was somebody who was always you know, hey, can I please get like a $100 or, you know, he'd do things where he'd come home to my parents' house and say like, oh, the dealer took my license and they're going to shoot up the house if you don't give me $400, like stuff like that. So everybody knew the extent of his addiction, and mine was a little more under the radar. So I just decided to eventually.
1: Which is more uh, dangerous. I don't want to interrupt, but. Yeah, 100%. that's how mine was, too. You know, you and I have a lot in common. That's why I wanted to talk to you because, yeah. like, I kept going for 10 years because no one was telling me not to. One time did they tell me to stop because I got arrested. And besides that, they, no one was telling me to go to rehab because they didn't have to. I was showing up to work. My yeah. dad and my brother and I ran a plumbing company together. And not only did we run it together, I would overcompensate and work twice as more than them. And give them days off so that I would feel better about always leaving to go get high. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I was trying to make up for the fact that I was a drug addict with them. And I'm like, oh, I'll work Friday or I'll take the phone calls or I'll take the on calls and I'll do this and I'll do that because I I always felt bad. I was leaving at 1 p.m. four days a week to drive from Mannheim, PA to, you know, South Jersey, two hours each way to pick up pills and then drive back. Yeah. You know, I did that four times a week for almost three years. So, but one one girl one girl beat me out though. You mentioned Florida. Yeah. There's one girl I talked to from Ohio. Her and her husband, seven times a month for five years, 22 hours each way, Florida and back. Yeah, driving. Yep. They were accumulating 1830s and 1800 bars and 1815s every single month between the two of them hitting seven different um, pill mills in Florida each month. Yep fucking crazy. She's like, That's "Yeah, we even had to rent a house eventually down there. We still didn't live in it, but we got our everything changed over to the addresses so we could keep going." I'm like, "Jesus Christ." Yeah. So, you know, whenever you're under the radar, it's almost more dangerous because we're like lying to ourselves because we're lying to everybody else. We yeah. think we have this under control. And it sounds like you're doing it you were doing the same thing I was, like, "Well, I'm not doing heroin. I'm just doing pills." Yeah. So, this isn't that bad. I have this under control. If I do heroin, I'll lose control. But right now, I have this under control. You can't say shit to me. I'm showing up to work. Yeah. So.
2: Oh, that only lasted for so long. I mean, you you have this facade to everybody else and you can feel it crumbling. You can feel the foundation of the life you're living crumbling under your feet. You know, you know that everything that is going well in your life is predicated on a thousand different decisions you have to make on a daily basis, right? In order to maintain that happy go lucky attitude that, Oh, you know, he's doing really well. And deep down, it's like, dude, I'm renting a room in a foreclosed home. Like I'm barely showering at this point. Like I did. At one point I was living in a friend's pool house And I had like, I would just buy wet wipes and just wipe my whole body down with these wet wipes. And that was my shower, you know? So it started to decline and people started to ask questions like, what's going on? Um, And then after a certain point, I know a lot of people who have the same story where it's like, my brother had asked me, hey, can you drive me to Camden? I'll give you 50 bucks, right? And I was like, all right, I actually need that because I was out of Perks. I didn't know anybody who had any at the time. And I was like, I'm going to be sick. So we drive to the city and I see him getting like, you know, 30, 40 bags of dope. And he's like, why don't I just give you five bags instead of 50 bucks? It'll just you won't be sick. And I'm like, dude, I don't like at the time. I didn't realize that basically all opiates are the same. Right. And we had that elitist attitude. And I'm like, I don't fuck with that shit. And he's like, dude, you're about to get sick. And, then, you know, start sneezing. Your nose starts running. You start feeling it all over your skin. So I'm like, all right, fine. So I take one. I dump out a whole bag. And I'm looking at it. And it's like nothing. And I'm like, dude, this is not going to do anything. At the time, I'm doing, you know, 10, 15 Johns a day. That's another thing. Like when you, you talk Johns. about the school buses, like you said from our Johns. area, that's all I've ever called
1: them. And he and you know what's funny is he, the dude from Philly yesterday that I talked to, he doesn't call them Johns in Philly really it's it's our side of the bridge that calls them Johns. What did he call them blues? Blues? No, 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 he called them thirties um, he oh, called okay. he called footballs, and I know you know what I mean when I say footballs, he called footballs blues.: Yeah, the one in knows. Philly yeah, well, they are blue, but still there's a lot of fucking blue. You know, so yeah, like it was, it was weird. He goes, "Oh no, we called the Xanax Blues." I'm like, "Footballs?" He was like, "Oh yeah, they are in the shape of a football." I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's what we called them." Yeah. Um. So yeah, Johns. That's that's hilarious because you know everyone calls everything a John in Philly. If you don't know anything, if American anything you're looking at could be a John. However, thirties were Johns, straight up thirties were Johns. They probably still are. It got to the point where I called them Jays. You know what I oh, mean? Really? Like, I would text my dude, like, you got any J's, because I wouldn't want to say Pills or Blues or 30s. or So I would say just J-A-Y-S instead of even Johns. I would just say J's.
2: <laughs> and he knew what you were talking about.
1: Yeah, I think the one of the funniest, like, you know, you know how it is when you're getting high with somebody all the time, especially, like, if it's your friend-friend, like, you kind of, like, have that mind melt. Like, I remember um we my buddy and I, we were seeing Wolf of Wall Street for the first time in theaters, And I was like so triggered that entire movie, obviously, but I was still in active addiction. So like it was fine to be triggered then. So I'm like texting my dude to set up a meet for immediately after the movie. And we're walking out of the movie. I'm like, all right, yo, we got to see blah, blah, blah on the way out of here. He goes, oh, I already texted him, too. (laughs) We were both texting the same fucking drug dealer from the movie to go meet him after because we were so triggered during that movie to go get high. Now I can watch it sober and laugh and not want to do drugs. But then I was like, I want to be like them. You know, like, it's so fucking weird. (laughs) <laughs> so you now you do this little line, and it's another one of those ahas. Uh,
2: I mean, I already had the feeling from you know doing opiates for years at this point, so it mm-hmm. was just a more concentrated feeling. Like I still, um, obviously I wasn't sick anymore. I was like throwing up in the back seat of my car. I made him drive, which wasn't a good idea. You know, he's fixing up a shot while he's driving. I'm laying in the back seat, And I'm going to be honest, like, I didn't like the feeling as much as I liked oxycodone. I liked the feeling of perks because they were such an easy way to manage exactly how much you're doing. You know, and I knew every day that, you know, when I would meet a guy like at Duncan or I eat my cool guy anywhere and i would crush two up on my phone half a duncan straw and i would snort it i knew that i was able to function for you know three four hours until i needed to do another
1: two was your magic number
2: yeah yeah like you know and i would just do them and feel fine but with the dope it was such a hit or miss thing where depending on what set you went to depending on what what type of dope it was you were either beat completely and it was not even real or it was just way too strong and it was it honestly really scared me and i would hang out with people who shot drugs all day and i would see them you know fall out or overdose or we'd have to call an ambulance and stuff like that and at this point nobody really knew what narcan was or carried it on them personally
1: yeah nobody was even testing for fentanyl either back then let's be real uh, you know, that wasn't a thing. Testing strips weren't popular. Shit, testing strips are still fucking illegal in Pennsylvania. If you are if you get caught with a fentanyl testing strip in Pennsylvania, it's considered paraphernalia. There are 29 other states in the country that consider te- um, testing kits paraphernalia. The other 20 states are like, no, this is harm reduction so that people don't die every day like they have been. And yeah. Pennsylvania is it's bullshit but at least philly they know what's up um mayor Kinney and the da larry kresner they're like no we don't believe in that we if we believe in harm reduction we're not going to prosecute anybody that comes through our system for paraphernalia for having a testing we support that we think it should be used so at yeah. least philly is doing the right thing they're like no fuck that law we're not going to prosecute but the rest of the state, if you get caught with a Fetty strip, like a testing strip, it's paraphernalia. You might as well be just have a rig on you. Yeah. Same difference. So, you know, just a way for them to throw more charges at people who are poor and can't afford them anyway. Let's be real. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a scary time. So, yeah, you're not testing anything. You're not doing – you're just grabbing and going, you know. Yeah. And – um. And, and the thing is, how you don't know, I, I, I wouldn't want that. That's why I liked, I think, the 30s so much because I always knew, ex- like you said, exactly what I was going to get from the mm-hmm. pill itself. I knew when I dropped, you, you did the Dunkin' Donuts, I would always do the Wawa or the McDonald's because yeah. they had the fatter straws and you could fit an entire pill inside the straw, you know, and, and then, then bend just, it in
2: half and chew the you know. end and then just pop it in.
1: Yep. <laughs> that one hurt. Usually I'm used to doing that snorting is good. Yeah. <clears throat> that one hurt. But yeah, I, cause I would be driving all the time. I would have to do it while driving. And so I would put sometimes four in there and just, that's a whole lot of dust. Um, yeah. the one time I was with my dude and he gave me a, I, he needed a ride. He was a serious dude. He didn't sell. He only sold. He didn't do them. He's like, I need a ride to get my car from the shop. I, I don't know if I told you this story either. Way, I'll take it out. But I was driving him, and I hit a fucking speed bump, or like a pothole, and it was on like Berlin Cross Keys Road, hit a pothole, and right after I extended the straw, and all the dust went on my lap. It was the only time that happened to me, and I did that two, three times a day for years that yeah. in that specific way, and that happened to me, and he was in the backseat, and he was like, bro, if I wasn't in your car to see it happen, I never would have believed you, and he handed me two more. Oh, uh, that's love right there. Nobody, but this dude also, I owe him $1,800 to this day, but I don't. I called him the day before I went to rehab, and I'm like, yo, man, like, I owe you 1800 I know that. Like, I had been paying it off little by little. He'll front me. I pay him. He'll front me. I had his bank account number. I used to do direct deposits into his account. Like, oh, that's how, you know, it was. Every Tuesday I got paid, I would drive to his bank and do a cash deposit. Um, and so I called him. I was like, Hey, I got to go to rehab or I'm going to fucking die. Like I'm going to kill myself. And he was like, listen, like I had set him up with so many fucking dealers. Like there are small time dealers that would do the small jobs for him that he didn't want to do. Cause I wasn't in town for anymore. So like I hooked him up with a lot of people. So he hooked me up still to this day. Cause he was like, dude, you go to rehab and I don't hear from you ever again. You don't owe me that money. If you go to rehab and I hear you're back and you're hitting people up, you owe me that eighteen hundred again. So to this day, that's three and a half such years a later, solid,
2: that's honestly pretty. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he's a drug dealer, but you know, you could tell that he mm-hmm. developed a friendship with you where he was like, "Dude, I don't want to see you." He probably didn't even want to be selling to you if he was if he ended up having that that type of. Uh, well,
1: think um, about it like this, though, bro. We're master manipulators, right? So who are you texting the most? You don't text dealers at the set. You show up at the set. Pill dealers, though, are the ones you are texting. They're the ones that have the family, and they have the house and the fence, and they're just getting the scripts, and they go and meet you real fast while they're running errands. So those are the ones that, like, we develop friendships over, like, hey, did you watch that Flyers game? Hey, did you see – because we're texting he's texting me all day too so he knows how fucking miserable i am he knows that i'm on the brink of killing myself that i've had attempts or thoughts or ideations so he was at this point like yeah you made me a shitload of money go get clean we don't need to do this anymore i talked to him once since then it was because i saw he started a new business on facebook like it popped up shot him a congratulations don't worry it's been 10 months still clean and sober and that was like three years ago we haven't talked since he said thanks keep going So, you know, it is what it is, but I got really lucky that I had a dude that said that to me, because most would be like, you're not going anywhere, motherfucker, you owe me money. Yeah. You know? So now, when does it get, like, really, now you're doing dope, are you even going back to 30s at this point? Uh, no.
2: No. So I did that for maybe, like, three months, and then I decided to stop on my own, (laughs) and I developed... Drinking problem. uh, That's why I
1: laughed because I was like, what's next?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, I thought that, you know, I wasn't cognizant of the fact that I was the common denominator in all these addictions, right? It was me that was the problem. And that's what that's what 12 Step Fellowship taught me. But at the time, I'm thinking, you know, opiates are terrible. I need to put those down and I'll be fine and I can drink normally with my friends. So did
1: you kick? Did you kick? Like yeah.
2: So like, like I told my parents knew what the deal was. I told them what was going on, and I was like, I just need like a week. Let me just stay here for a week, and I'll be fine. Um, and then I'll get back to work. Yada yada yada. I told my job I had a flu, and um, you know, it was awkward. Like my parents subs, were real upset. Or did you just do it cold? Yeah, yeah. Just I just cold laid therapy. on my couch, laid in the, in the basement because they watch TV shows. Yeah, I tried to just kind of, I don't know. I mean, I literally would just take like five showers a day and just kind of sit at home and drink a little bit of water. And I remember on like day two, I like begged my mom for like some Ambien because she's prescribed it for sleep. So I like took a bunch of them and I got like three hours of sleep. And then I eventually made it um, to day like four or five. And I told them I was going to go to a meeting. Cause my friend had gotten sober and I had never gone to a meeting before. I didn't end up going. I just went to the liquor store and, you know, bought a handle and snuck it back home. And then I moved back out and then my drinking really, it pretty much from day one was another addiction. You know, I became an alcoholic. I was shaking in the morning. I couldn't function without liquor, you know, times when I'd wake up and it's 7am and I didn't have liquor you know, I was stuck to either going to Acme or Shoprite and buying, you know, peppermint extract, lemon extract, vanilla extract, or even scope, you know, and drinking mouthwash. Um, it's 23.5% alcohol, you know, so it's 47 proof. It's still something. Uh, it makes <laughs> you sick, but yeah, it does. I'd over until the liquor store opened. But uh, so what this were all you drink
1: What were you drinking the handles of though at the time?
2: I was drinking airplane bottles of 99 bananas, 99 grapes and 99 oranges.
1: So you were just buying a shitload of airplane bottles every day.
2: Yeah. And And just, you know, that's what they say is the smaller, the bottle, the bigger, the problem. Right. So people who would go and buy a one seven five, a kettle one or something and leave it like my father would buy a jug handle of either goose or kettle one and keep it in the freezer And he'd have that shit for months, you know, and I'm sitting here buying 20, 30 tiny little bottles every day because I don't want people to know I'm drinking. And I had already had a DUI when I was 19. So now I'm drinking even more, Um, you know, getting plastered starting from as soon as I wake up until I go to sleep, I'm drunk. And then I ended up getting another DUI. Um, I was leaving work. My coworker took my keys from me and said, you're not driving home. So I said, that's fine. Can you drive me home? She drives me home. I ask her for my keys back because I'm like, my door's locked. I need the keys. She's like, all right. As soon as she hands me the keys, I run back to my car, like four miles to my office, get in my car. As I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I lived in West Effort at the time and my job was in West Effort. So it was only four miles away. So I'm opening the glove compartment to try and look for an unopened airplane bottle. There's airplane empty ones falling all over my car. And I didn't see obviously the cop car in front of me and I crashed into him at a red light. So I basically didn't know that.
1: Of all people you could hit in that moment right there.
2: Like what I remember is like, like being cognizant of the accident and seeing a cop at my window and being like, dude, this guy got here quick. Like what the hell's going on? And he rips me out of the car. He's like, pissed as shit. Like, dude, you ruined my, my cruiser. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't, you know, I've already had a DUI. So I knew the deal. And I just straight up told him, I'm like, dude, I'm hammered. Like, I just, I didn't feel like doing the whole Song and dance, like you know, like there's liquor bottles all over my car, like I'm yeah,
1: you got me dead to rights, I don't yeah. need to sit here and lie to you, just do what you got to do and fucking take me away, yeah, so they
2: ended up taking me to the station, my buddy picked me up, um, and I had to come home and like tell my parents, like what was going on, yeah, you know, my drinking's been out of control, I just got another DUI, and something um, so two years before I was born in nineteen eighty five My father's brother and his sister were killed by a drunk driver. Um, There was a bunch of kids. This was actually in West Effort, And there was a bunch of kids who were drinking at the time. You know, it's mid 80s. They played football for the school. They got pulled over and the cop was like, look, just go home. You know, and instead they're driving around this bend by the West Effort High School. And my aunt and uncle at the time were driving home from somewhere else and they crashed into them and all six kids ended up passing away, you know, and uh, Shit. really affected my dad. It affected my grandparents. It was something really traumatic that happened to them. So growing up, man, like I didn't talk about this, but my father had always told me, look, if you're ever drinking and you need a ride home or you need something like this, don't hesitate to call me you know, I'll pick you up. You won't get in trouble as long as you do the right thing. But that goes out the window when I think I'm so slick and I'm untouchable. It's like, dude, I'm not trying to have that conversation. I'll just get home. It's fine. And, uh, you know, coming home and having to tell him, you know, not only did I cause another accident because my first DUI was an accident. My friend was injured. But, you know, I crashed into a cop. I'm drunk again. I have a drinking problem. I just got another DUI. So, I pretty much got kicked out of the house. I was going from house to house. was trying to, you know, live on people's couches. Or at one point I was living in a graveyard, man. So I found like this big evergreen tree where you would walk under the leaves. And by the trunk, it was this big opening. So I had a sleeping bag and I had like a little backpack with my stuff. And I just lived there and drank. I was a homeless alcoholic. And I picked the graveyard because I figured people wouldn't bother me there. You know, like nobody's coming into the graveyard at night and like seeing me sleeping there. It's not like a park bench. Yeah. Um I mean that was probably the lowest point of um my drinking we're using and then obviously from the depression of that started to mix in the Xanax with it. And then once I meet the person selling the Xanax, they have thirties, you know, they have dope, they have all these things. So then I'm like just doing everything, you know, and um that's eventually when in 2014, it was July. It was July 16th, 2014. And this is what landed me in treatment for the first time. And I'm on OKCupid. I'm trying to find like, I'll be honest, I was trying to find like an ugly chick that I could talk to that would let me stay at her house. That was my goal. I don't want to be sleeping out here like I'm going to woo some girl and I'm going to be able to just stay at her place.
1: How about your see- mother would call that banging for roof?
2: Banging
1: for a roof that's how i met your mother they, they <laughs> in, in one of the episodes they barney talked about um going to bars that were further away and always trying to hook up with someone this way that he could stay with them and then leave in the middle of the night but he would always never fuck them he would always leave before like fall pretend to fall asleep when he would get up to their room yeah and he his name was the sexless innkeeper and then somebody else called it banging for roof so <laughs> there was two different terms used So I was original. You're not original, and you're not that much of an asshole. I mean, you are an asshole, but not that much. Don't worry. Yeah. We're all assholes. (laughs) Well, I ended up
2: finding my ex-girlfriend, right? And it was somebody I had dated when I first started doing pills, and she had been a full-blown heroin addict, right? So I saw her, and I'm like, dude, she definitely um, is probably using, probably can hook me up with something, and I might be able to stay with her. And I message her on the dating app and she's like, Yeah, I don't get high anymore. I went to rehab and I live in an Oxford house. And I'm like, what the fuck is an Oxford house? And she's like, Well, after treatment, it's a place you live where you can stay sober. And that was my first like um like step two experience, like spiritual awakening, where I I knew somebody in my life who was a stone cold junkie who was now sober, you know, and refusing to do drugs with me. She, she didn't want to deal with any of that. So I basically, I still was trying to, you know, manipulate. And I said, well, you know, will you sleep with me if I get clean? And she was like, yeah. She's like, I miss you. She's like, call this guy. He'll drive you to treatment. He'll tell you everything you need to know. And at the time, you know, I didn't necessarily really even want to quit using, like I, I was content. I wasn't content. I knew that my life sucked, but I accepted the fact that this was my life. I was going to die like this, right? Alone. Family wanted nothing to do with me. No friends, you know, With the things you love. Yeah. And just, I, I was like, this is just what my fate is. And I was like, well, if I do this, maybe I could sleep with this chick again. So I call this guy. And I'm like, hey, my name's Brian. Like, I was told to call you from so-and-so. And he's like, you ready? And I'm like, I guess. And he's like, all right, I'll pick you up tomorrow at noon. Be ready. Where are you at? And I told him. He comes the next day, picks me up. He has a pack of cigarettes for me. He has a coffee for me. And he's like, we're going to rehab. I'm like, all right. So I go to the rehab. I was there for like 35 days. Then I went to a halfway house after that. And I'm talking to this girl the whole time, right? And then I was like, I guess I'll do an Oxford house, too, because that's what she's in. So I move into an Oxford house. I literally cannot wait to turn my phone on and text her and be like, hey, guess what? Like, I'm sober now. And she's like, oh, yeah, I have a boyfriend. She's like, I'm glad you got sober, though. So she basically said all those things.
0: She 12-stepped you. Yeah.
1: 12-stepped you with a 13-step promise. Yeah. That's exactly what happened <laughs> So then I figured An empty like alright Yeah I can't I
2: can't, no, that's I can't awesome. go back on this now You yeah. know like now I'm feeling good I laughed more than I ever had when I was in rehab Yo
1: isn't you know? that weird with your stomach right You know what yeah. I mean When I say with your stomach like I was doing fucking stand up comedy And I forgot how to laugh And I didn't know that I forgot how to laugh You know and it's weird to say And it's such a thing like I didn't realize I wasn't laughing the entire time that I was doing stand-up, man. It wasn't until I was in fucking rehab. Like you said, I'm in sober living. I'm in meetings. And I'm fucking around and we're having fun and we're sober that I truly laughed like a fucking child again with yeah. my stomach. And I felt that laughter in my face and I felt my face hurt from smiling. You know, those were just some of the things that I didn't even realize that I was missing out on. Because I was so numb the entire time. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to laugh with your stomach when you don't actually feel shit.
2: Well, you weren't even using those muscles for however long.
1: Yeah, that's like, real. When like,
2: whoa, this
1: feels weird. <laughs> yeah, like, and then the other thing was gratitude. I didn't know that gratitude, the word, was used outside of Thanksgiving until I got sober. I didn't know that people said that every day. I didn't know that people said I'm a grateful whatever. I'm grateful for this or do a 10 step list on being fucking grateful. I didn't know any of that. I just thought you said I'm grateful on Thanksgiving yeah, and that was it. And then I got sober. So that's weird. So now you're like you got like 90 days under your belt. You're in the Oxford house. She's like, I'm glad you are. But see ya. But yeah. I hope you, you you took it good, though, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I fucked a yeah. roommate, so that was fine. <laughs> Don't worry, I got you a roommate, Bri.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, that I ended up uh, the first, very first time, you know, I went to treatment. I mean, I had lost over, like in my past, I had gone to psychiatric facilities. Like I tried to take my own life like three different times. Um, and two of them were not even, when I was addicted to drugs, I was just severely depressed when I was younger. But this was my first time in a drug treatment center. And with the house that I moved into, everybody went to NA meetings, but nobody did any step work, right? So yeah, I had the network, you know, I had fun, you know, there were women around, you know, we gambled, degenerately gambled so, and that kept me clean for three years, but it was not, it was not all peaches and cream. Like I was still depressed.
1: So now like you're clean for the first time and are you, in, you're in Jersey, you're in Magnolia, you're, yeah. are you back to work again?
2: Yeah, uh, I went back to serving tables. Um, I worked at Olive Garden with like four other guys who lived in my house. So you know there were sober people that yeah. worked there, but I got you into you weren't a working a
1: program. Yeah, okay, no, there it is. No, no. There, okay, so you're not you're not working any steps. I was like waiting for the butt, and here, and yeah. you just but you got into a relationship.
2: Yeah. Well, I had gone on like a tear. Right. So I would just, you know, I was replacing my addiction with women and that was something, I mean, I'll be honest. I still struggle with that to this day, but, um, I meet this girl, I get into a relationship with her. She had two kids and we were together from like my first year in sobriety up until I relapsed. And, you know, I distanced myself from the program. I stopped doing the meetings. Um, I stopped talking to my friends who were clean or sober. And that was really the only program I had. I didn't have any recovery. I just had accountability in talking to other people who were clean. And once I took that away and was just with her, I started to think I was normal again. I moved out of the Oxford fairly quickly. Um, I moved back into my parents, into my basement. And me and her basically stayed there together. uh, Or we would be at her house with her kids. And then we had a pretty terrible breakup and I was like, well, I'm going to get high because I know that that'll make me feel better. And I didn't have anybody in my life that was calling on a daily basis. I didn't have a program, you know, I hadn't been through the steps at all. Um, you know, of course I told people I did, you know, I told my family like, yeah, I've been clean for three years. Like I've been through the steps. I have sponsors." I lied about all this stuff because I knew they weren't able to call me on it. and. You know, I would go to a meeting and I wouldn't say stuff like that because people would see right through it. But with my yeah. family, they're the thinking, oh, no, yeah. drugs, he definitely does this stuff. So then I, I ended up relapsing. And uh, once you relapse with a head full of even the cliches or like knowing that you're just numbing yourself, you know, the problems are still going to be there once you come to like life's going to get worse. Like you'd see the decline. Um and then you know, I had a kid reach out to me and say, "Dude, you got to get sober again." Um, so I ended up just doing Were that. You all
1: still my- making content, bro. Were you still putting out no, content? No. no. So okay. at this
2: point, at this point, I wasn't even really like I didn't have a page or anything like that. I just kind of still found like other people's memes funny. Um yeah. I saw what other people made, but then the next time that I got sober, um, I had this was in 2018 I got sober and after a year I moved to Florida and when I was in Florida is when I started to actually make content and I started to make memes and I started to Nick had me as an admin on the dark side Facebook page mm-hmm. and at the time that he brought me and me in as admin it was me him Uh, This guy, Jason, whose page is called Just Say Maybe on Instagram. Uh, He's hilarious. He posts a lot of funny drug humor. And another guy who goes by Adam the house cat. And we built the page up. Dude, it had over like, you know, a couple hundred thousand followers. And then it ended up getting nuked on Facebook. So I was like, man, I need to come up with a page. I was like, I'll make an Instagram So I made an Instagram. I called it Straight Pepper Diet because at this point in Florida, I had switched from N.A. to A.A., started to actually work a program. You know, I'd gone through my steps like I was active in the recovery community. I was in service. I took speaking commitments like I had a home group. I had two home groups at one point down there. Like I was really trying to do. Were you uh, in Delray? uh, So I first moved down to Boca Raton. I moved down there with over a year. I was going to start a call center with a friend of mine. So we moved down to Boca. Uh, and then I moved to Delray. And then I just started moving around to a ton of different places.
1: Delray Beach I ended is South Jersey Junior. Oh, 100%. South Jersey is down there. everybody what? in Del, Everybody I fucking know is lives in Delray or went to Delray. Like, I even... <clears throat> I was just talking to my buddy about this. Um, I even know the dude that ran halfway there down there. Really? I went to, I grew up with him since we were little and he ran halfway there and then got, you know, indicted for embezzling or, you know, fraud, fraud charges of $52 million worth of fraud. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, yeah. And my boy, Kevin, that was on my show the other day, he's celebrating four years. Yo, him and I met in AA in Los Angeles, South Jersey. Really? So we had a lot in common. He got arrested in the Walmart in in Audubon parking lot where I used to always buy my pills. So him and I had a lot of like funny stories when we first met. So I finally had him on the show. I just posted a video yesterday of a clip of him talking about, um, he was like, yeah, on my relapse, you know, I knew I had to get sober when I got ringworm from a tiger. I'm like what he was like yeah i used to live at the mansion with them and they got a fucking tiger one day and i was bottle feeding it and they gave me ringworm what yeah this dude yeah so like i had him on and we were talking and he was like dude i was at the fucking one across the street watching them raid him as it was happening in 2014 he was at the halfway house across the street watching that one get raided by the atf yeah. So I was like, yeah, he used to hit home runs when we were kids. <laughs> like, you know, he has like he was like that bulky. He's like a big dude. So he was smoking home runs when we were kids. Like he was like little Babe Ruth, they called him like kids, kids. You know, he didn't drugs happen. We When you grow up in Audubon Park, it is so hard to fucking make it out. Audubon Park is so much different from Audubon because of how close it is to Camden and all the stereotypes that were poor. You know, like, my one boy from the park is killing it right now in recovery. You probably know him, Rob Lutman. Oh, I know Rob. Yeah, me, yeah, me and him go way back. Like, Slobby, we used to, his nickname in high school was Slob B, and mine was <laughs> Mess. And um, his best friend um, is my cousin, and his other best friend was Chris Pasha. Chris Pasha was the first person. That was, like, I talk about him all the time in my story because— when I was 11, I discovered alcohol, right? We were just drinking, having fun. And then 12, Chris got hit by a car and died. And he was running across Black Horse Pike in Audubon Park, and he got hit and didn't make it. And he was the fastest person I knew. He was supposed to go to the NHL, all that shit. And we were all devastated. So I said to my boy, like, hey, man, like, we can drink, and we're going to feel better. Boom, alcoholic. And I know that now looking back, that that was my moment of becoming an alcoholic. You don't know that shit when you're 12, okay. you know, but it's just one of those things where it's funny. It's not funny, but like how it works out. Now Rob is killing it with like what he does with sunrise detox and everything else in Cherry Hill with like the network of therapists. So now you're in Florida, you're in Delray. And do you have a relapse down there? Yeah. Okay, yeah what, so What happened?
2: Well, I moved down there to start and open a phone room. And I find out after I get there that it wasn't um, as legitimate as I thought it was. So then I kind of bounced around all these places. You know, it was getting high. Um, I end up in Lake Worth. I end up in Boynton Beach. At one point, I ended up on some girl's couch in her apartment that I met at a meeting. And um, then I moved up further to Port St. Lucie. And once I got to Port St. Lucie, Uh, that's where I was talking about I took it serious I started working a program of Alcoholics Anonymous Um, I started getting in service I started going to detoxes going to treatment centers doing speaking commitments you know developing a network of really cool guys in recovery down there Uh, and that's when I first decided to make my page I made the page I started making you know drug humor on there it didn't even really take off I mean I had probably like 70 or 80 followers on there just like people who knew me and um you know I was still active on Facebook and I would make posts like with Nick on that Facebook page before it got taken down and then what happened was just trying to network with other people you know it's pretty much how like when you reached out to me and said hey do you want to be on a podcast and then you know now I'll repost any clips that you edit of like me and you and I can throw that on my page and then people will follow you because of that. And then just trying to do networking with larger pages, like bigger creators, you know? And, um, I remember when Dank Recovery was on Facebook, you know, and they had like over a million followers. Yeah. That's like like
0: the, the OG. Yeah. Yeah. They're like
2: the top recovery page. And he's honestly one of the coolest dudes. Um, won't say his name in here that way you don't have to edit it out but he's a really religious guy he works a really solid program at aa but he has like that dark humor like he loves making jokes like that and i used to dm the memes that i made all the time be like please post this on your page please post this and you know eventually they found one funny that i sent them and they posted it up there and you know i was like elated i'm like oh my god like i'm like famous now you know and it was, it was really corny looking back on it, but I made this page and I started connecting with other creators and realizing that these people are just like me. Like they just want to see other people, um, laugh, you know, and be able to connect with people. But it's to the point now where, you know, I'll go on to my Instagram and I'll go to my DMS and yeah, people will laugh at the stories I put on, or people will say, Oh, that was relatable, but Literally on a daily basis, you know, I have a few people each day that reach out that say, Hey, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your page. Like I'm using right now. My family doesn't know. I've never been to treatment. I don't know how to do it. You know, and I get to be the person who's like a a confidant, I guess. Like they don't know me. I'm a random person on the internet and they're telling me like these deepest, darkest secrets. You know, they're unloading like trauma or whatever's going on in their life and they're asking for help. And I, You know, I tell them, look, I'm not like some recovery guru. Like I just kind of make jokes. But, you know, if you need help, like I've gone online and I'll go to like SAMHSA's website and I'll find out what state they're in and I'll send them links and say, hey, call this number. You know, this place will get you in. I've made phone calls to help people get into treatment.
1: You know why, though? Because it it takes us seconds. We know what we need to do. And we also know what their thinking is like. I know if somebody reaches out, and because they have with mine, too, and it's been fucking amazing. It's such an amazing yeah. feeling to be able to be there. If you go to my Facebook page for my business, um, for my meeting center, it says very responsive to messages because I do not fuck around. If you message us asking for help, I'm answering, you know? And it means a lot because I know what it's like to be on the other end of that phone, right? I know what it's like to wait for a response back and to be like, they're going to judge me. They're going to hate me. They're not even going to give me the time of day. And then I'm worthless. I'm a piece of shit, yada, yada, yada. These are all the self negative self-talk I would say to myself all day long in addiction. I always talk about, you know, when I decided to go to rehab, it was because I found that high sobriety on a documentary. I'm watching this documentary, Legend of 420. And they mention high sobriety as a rehab and a sober living that helps you get off of opiates with using cannabis. And for the first time in 10 years, I'm like, oh, shit, I would do that. Next day, I'm sitting in the McDonald's for like eight hours, waiting forever for somebody to hit me up to be like, yeah, I'm good. Finally, I see somebody. He wants one. The other person that's getting them wants one. So now I'm buying four and I'm getting two, right? Or I'm getting three. And I slammed two right away. Like we said, that two was the magic number. And I'm driving back on the turnpike in PA, my long two-hour drive after a 10-hour day on a Saturday with 1.30 left. And my dog in the back seat, she would always, my road dog, drive with me so I wouldn't, I brought my dog with me so that I wouldn't commit suicide. If she was with me, I wouldn't drive my car into a tree like I wanted to all the time. So she would always come with me. And I never knew how long that was going to be. At least if I was at McDonald's for eight hours, I can take her to pee real quick and put her back in the car. And she loves the people watch. So she'll be happy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm driving back and I'm looking at her in the rear view. And she's like, give me this look like, bro, you're fucking up. Like, do something. And I Googled high sobriety at 8 p.m., 5 p.m. in California on a Saturday. And I talked to this dude, Justin, for two hours. I went into treatment three days later. I can't tell you. If he didn't answer that phone because it was Saturday night, you know, and it was May, April, and it's nice weather, he's out there hanging out with his friends. He'd be like, oh, I'll take this call tomorrow. I never would have answered it. I probably wouldn't have called it back. Yeah. I would have been like, Well, I tried. No one wanted to reach out and throw me a line. So at least I can say I tried to get help. Yeah. I never would have followed through with it. So that's why I find it important to try to answer obviously life happens we're talking right now i'm not answering messages you know that's whatever yeah i looked and i got
2: like some text but i was like i'll answer them after
1: yeah i got like a bunch of fucking different things and it's like uh, they'll be there you know but you know the the important thing is is i try to answer when i can if it's two in the morning and if i'm awake i'm going to respond yeah you know i'm I'm not going to play that game of like i don't want them to seem like i'm too eager like i'm fucking married i'm not trying to fuck them trying to help yeah, him. I can answer them back <laughs> oh so, yeah it is a great feeling and it keeps me going too you know what I mean like it's great for my recovery and the way I do things and it seems like it's been great for you too yeah, like because that when when did you decide last October that you were like I'm gonna do this again
2: um so I mean I I was using towards the start of the pandemic um the job I was at I was making great money And I was collecting unemployment under the table. Were you you in Florida
1: or back in Jersey? I
2: was back in Jersey. I moved home uh, December 2019, so like three months before the pandemic started. Uh, So I got into a job. I was making really good money, and, you know, some people there were using, and I ended up picking up because I guess just because I had all this money, and I figured, you know what? I had it in my head. I said, I'm going to use for a little while. I have the money to bankroll an addiction. And then I'll just get sober again.
1: So and like John, I didn't and think, John's are easy to hide. Yeah. Like yeah. Xanax, they could tell my face every single time. I got every time I did a Xanax, even one, I had my family members calling me out for being high. But yeah. John's, they never called me out for being high.
2: Because it's so, hard to it's hard to pinpoint, you know. Yeah. But on Xanax, when you're fucking eating uh, seven pints uh, of ice cream and
1: drooling. <laughs>
2: yeah, right. Well something's up. <laughs> but uh no I I didn't really think I had a problem at this point you know in terms of relapses or using this past time I wasn't it wasn't a rock bottom you know like from like my life before to like my last relapse like I wasn't throwing everything away you know I still managed to have my job but it was the in the inside like within my soul like I felt empty I knew that it was wrong and I call it, I call it the recovery condom, right? So as soon as you ever get into recovery, you have a head full of AA, you have a head full of whatever program you work. And then once you get high or you go back out, you still have that, right? So you're not raw dog drugs ever again. Like you're not, you, you got a rubber on.
1: And, like, I'm, and I'm laughing because I'm relating because obviously we know this by now, you laugh and yeah. you relate, you know what I mean? But like when I relapse with drinking, after 13 months clean, you know, when I originally did it, you know, three and a half years ago, when I relapsed with drinking, I bought a six pack of twisted tea and I poured the first two out because to prove to myself that I didn't need to drink all six Jesus because Christ. of what you just said of what yeah. was in my head. <laughs> like, I'm not an alcoholic. Look, I can pour drinks out. It's OK. <laughs> you know, I after you
2: crush those four, you wish you didn't pour them out.
1: I did and I didn't because I was smoking then. That's when I was like, well, if I'm drinking, I might as well smoke weed because that's when I was, like, smoking weed. You know, I would do the vapes here and there, but I started smoking a lot of flour then, too. Like, fucking, I was going through an ounce a week of medicinal, easy, and I don't smoke blunts or joints. It was in bongs and bowls that I was going through an ounce a week in. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, especially in medicine, medicine, bud up here, it's not like I'm buying it on the street. I'm getting medical, bud, you know, so, I mean, now, like I said, I don't want to smoke and plus it literally hurts because I threw up so much bile in my addiction from withdrawing every day and constantly throwing up bile every day um, that I lost a shitload of stomach lining by my gallbladder. So now I have this nerve that rubs up against the back of my stomach that's not being protected by any tissue that when I cough really hard, it hits it really hard and it hurts like a motherfucker. So if I smoke, I'm coughing, you know, and I smoke cigarettes as it is, and cigarettes aren't going to make me cough by now. It's been 20 some years of a pack a day, but I don't want to add in more smoke on top of I am trying to change my relationship. I am trying to have it as a medicine. If I smoke a joint, I'm going to feel the effects immediately. If I take a capsule, it's an hour to three hours, and it's going to do its job. And it's not an immediate an effect that I'm escaping with, like I did with pills and drinking. You escape right away with snorting and chugging. Right. So, you know, that relationship thing is a huge deal to me. So I get that. So now, you know, in, you go for, what, 10 months, December to October, if I'm not mistaken? Is that what you did? Yeah, so
2: pretty much that whole time I was, you know, I drank one time because I was so scared that if I had started drinking, it would just snowball and I'd end up losing everything. So I was pretty much just doing Xanax and perks. And, you know, a lot of times they were pressed perks. So I was like petrified to do too many because I didn't want to die, you know. Um, and I was dating a girl who was in recovery. I don't know why the fuck she decided to start dating me because I was getting high already. Um, and she but knew? Then she's like, yeah, she knew. I mean, I would drive. It, it's kind of fucked up, but, like, I would pick her up and I would go to, to meet somebody to get perks, and she would be in the car, and she'd be like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, because, you know, you're still around. Like, you're not leaving me because of it. And then after a certain point, I'm like, dude, this girl just doesn't care, you know? Um, and I kind of wanted her... To take care. To care. Yeah. So it started to go downhill. And eventually in October, uh beginning October, she's like, You need to go to rehab or you know, I'm gonna leave you. Um, you know, I had lost the job that I was working at, and I was only living off unemployment, so I was just home all day. And uh I was like, you know what, you're right, I'm not able to stop on my own this time. So I called, went back to Maryville, which I had been to before and uh you know it wasn't it's not the best facility it's a state-run facility i mean i had medicaid so it wasn't going to this nice bougie place anymore and um you know i just wanted to do something different so i got out of there and i moved um to an oxford house down by atlantic city because she lived in an oxford house in summers point so it was like maybe 15 20 minutes away
0: yeah so i
2: predicated where I was living on, like staying with her and thinking we're going to be like together forever. But then once I got sober, I realized, you know, she liked the chaos of me in active addiction because she could get away with things that I was just not cognizant of. You know, I'd be taking all these bars and passing out. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. she's texting and chilling with guys, chilling with girls, doing anything that she wanted to do. And was able to get it off because I just didn't care and just didn't know. And then once I get sober and I want to be present and I want to like, you know, let's meet you and your son go out and, you know, we'll take him out somewhere. Or we'll go out to eat and stuff like that. And she started to kind of be like, I don't really even fuck with him anymore now that I'm sober. And then we broke up before Christmas last year, um, like three days before Christmas. Perfect Which was topic. honestly a blessing because it was a pretty yeah. toxic relationship. I didn't yeah. see how toxic it was when I was using, you know.
1: Well, and so, we don't. And like we and we talked about earlier, we can't see that toxicity on anything when we're up close to it. It's like seeing that. It's like that cliche seeing the forest through the trees. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's the exact same thing. So, you know, you step away. Now you're two months sober. And are you going back to work in a program again this time? I, I mean, obviously yeah. you are. We've talked about it. But how yeah. long before you were like, oh, I know I need to get detox and get back into working the steps again? What do you mean? Like, did you know, like, that you just need to detox and then get back into working the steps and hitting meetings and fellowshipping and shit? Yeah. But, when did you start creating again then? Because I'm sure you. Uh, so I was, cre- I was actually making memes
2: the whole time that I was using. Um, mm-hmm. And it was. You probably got I started- some ideas while
1: you were getting high too.
2: Oh, 100%. A lot of the templates that I made back then, like prior to last October, were like, I would put like little pictures of Zans into different things. Like I'd put like pictures of perks into stuff and it was like pictures that I was taking. You yeah. know, uh, I filmed a lot of videos of myself, like barred out that I still have. I ended up incorporating it into the one TikTok I made. Um, you know, so I was like, I was still making memes, but the people who followed me, Uh, From the beginning who saw the difference from, you know, lighthearted drug humor and, you know, recovery humor started to see like I'm incorporating more like suicidal memes, like uh, idolizing, like killing myself, like drugs, like really dark things. And people are like, dude, you need help. You know, this isn't like funny, uplifting stuff. This is seems like a cry for help. You know,
1: that's Uh, like me in the last month of stand up. Meet yeah. like the last month of my addiction and doing stand up. Like there was sometimes if I was going on, there was a theater that I used to go to on Sundays called the Good Good Comedy Theater in Philly in Chinatown, mm-hmm. and um the crowd was always just other comics and their girlfriends or boyfriends, you know, significant others. That not was everybody the crowd. in the industry. Yeah, it's it's not like people like you and me, like regular people aren't going to see a show on a Sunday night there. It's people would practice in front of people. You know, and that's that's basically what we're doing is we're pe- we're practicing. And so I would get up there. My friends or family wouldn't be in the crowd ever. And I would get up there and I'm like I'm JD and I'm an alcoholic uh, I'm at the wrong place. But I'll just keep talking kind of thing. And yeah. just I would be I would be doing a share and not knowing I was doing a share. I didn't know that people shared in meetings like that. I'd never been to meetings. Right. I would just show and I'm just talking just to get it all out of how my day was and how I felt. And then all of a sudden I'm in you know meetings and I'm getting sober and I'm like how am I going to talk in front of these people sober? And I'm like well I just got to do stand up and just do my shares that way. And then as I was doing it I started realizing like oh shit I was already doing this in stand up, but now yeah. I'm sober and I'm just talking about my day and how I'm feeling and just like that got me used to talking in front of people again. Like but I I've only done stand up once since I got sober and it was on my nine month anniversary. And it was a horrible crowd. And I just said, fuck it. I'm not going back there. It was in Harrisburg. Now, let, me,
2: let me ask you a question because I obviously I've always thought about doing stand up. I was somebody like growing up, people were always like, you should do stand up, You should try and do like comedy. You should try and do this. And I was always like, you know, it scared me. But when you're in a meeting, you know, how do you determine the difference between because a lot of times when I share in a meeting, Like, I have an ulterior motive to make people laugh. So, like, how do you deal with like JD, the addict, alcoholic, or JD, the comic? Like, how do you, when you share, do you try and make people laugh or do you try and be like, oh, I should probably make this a little more serious?
1: It's a mixture of reading the room and what other shares came first, you know, because I am paying attention, you know. So, if a lot of people are, going around there being somber and I need to bring it up, then, yeah, I'm going to try to make people laugh to, to, like, kind of bring it back a little bit. Or mm-hmm. if we're talking about some serious shit, I'm not just going to make some fucking, you know, so I am reading the room. It is a fine line because, and I'm sure you can agree, Absolutely. I am better uncomfortable and laughing. It makes more sense to me to laugh at the darkness and to being uncomfortable and the bad. So there's a lot of times where, like, I'm sharing, and it could be a mental health meeting, a trauma meeting, not even, like, an AA or an NA meeting, and I'm getting these looks from people who are there for not for drinking or using and not used to these kind of shares, and they're even, they're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, (laughs) some of the shit that we would share that's normal in any meeting, but, like, in a meeting where somebody's not an alcoholic or an addict, they're just there for mental health. I'm getting some looks sometimes, but I am getting laughs. So that's always the thing. I'm like, all right, I've got to laugh. But no, I'm always reading the room, man. There's sometimes where, like, and you know it, I need to laugh at myself. I need to share something that's embarrassing that's going to make you laugh at me. But I need to share it in a way. If I'm in a bad mood, I got to make you laugh to lift myself up sometimes, too. So, like, if I'm depressing in my head, if I'm making you laugh on the other side or making the crowd laugh or making, you know, people laugh that are watching me share, then at least I'm out of my head for a minute because I just made their day a little bit better. You know? It's like the
2: sad clown.
1: Yeah. That's, well, that's all comics are, bro. As stand-up yeah. comedy, people are like, oh, Robin Williams is so happy. Like, no, we're fucking, we're broken. There's so many of us that are broken. And, you know, and I say us, but I haven't made a dime in stand-up. But, you know, but, like, anybody who gets on stage and bears their soul like that is usually broken, bro. Like, because they have something inherently wrong where they need you to like them. Yeah. And the difference with, you know, performers when it comes to comics and, like, musicians, right? Say, you know, you're a musician. We already talked about this. And I do stand-up. Say you write one great five-minute song. You can make millions of dollars off that one five minute song. I could have a great five minute joke, and everybody's like, "Where's your other fifty five minutes?" Yeah, that's funny, but what else do you got? I also can't go on stage and do a five minutes Jerry Seinfeld bits and make you laugh to work on my timing. You can go on stage and do a cover of Adele and be like, "Holy shit, who is that guy who can sing like a fucking bird who is yeah. get him a get him a deal? Anybody will write him you know songs to sing." No one's going to work hear my timing of Seinfeld jokes and be like, we got to write him some jokes. He's got timing, that one. Yeah. You know, so, like, there's no one-hit wonders with us. We got to grind in the dirtiest of fucking places. There's a lot of us that start out in strip clubs and all that shit in the weirdest places doing stand-up, and we're not making money at all. Like, I did stand-up for years and didn't make a dime. (laughs) Like, you don't get paid unless you're famous. Like podcasts have been helping stand up um, comics make money because now I heard Bobby Lee talk about it. Like before, you know, Bobby Lee, he was on Mad TV back in the day. He was a Korean dude. And yeah, he does I've stand-up. seen him
2: on uh, Theo Vaughn's podcast.
1: Oh, yeah. He does Theo all the time. Yeah. So Bobby is hilarious. And he talk. he never done a special, but he talks about when he used to travel on the road to do stand up, you know, say he was coming to Philly. We would only know he's in Philly when he does a like Preston and Steve radio show. You know, he's on Preston and Steve on Thursday morning promoting, hey, I'm at Helium all weekend, come buy tickets. That's how you go see him. But now because of podcast, he can be like, oh, I'll be in Philly on this weekend. I'll be here this weekend. Now that he's his fans are coming to him, and now he's selling out shows everywhere he goes. Before, he was getting like 50% capacity. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of ways that, you know, stand-ups can make money or even find other avenues or ways to promote themselves without even just doing their their bits one of my favorite comedians is ryan sickler and i never even heard him do stand-up but he's a great podcast host Oh, you know okay. he's hilarious on his podcast he tells hilarious stories he has amazing guests on um it's called the honeydew and it's where he spends time highlighting the lowlights lights. So everybody he talks to, he's talking about their worst situations, but making them laugh about it. So it's fucking amazing. It's called The Honeydew Podcast. He does a Patreon show where he talks to regular people like us, too. And here are highlights of lowlights. And, yeah, he's awesome. He's from Baltimore, and he's got this crazy laugh, and he cracks me up. So, like, you know, there's shit that I find that is dark that makes me laugh, and then there's shit that, I don't know. I just... To me, laughter is important and making you laugh and making my wife laugh and my kid or whatever. Like, you're taking that person out of their head for a second. Yeah. And being stuck in our heads is a dangerous place to be. So, like, when did it take off for you? What do you mean? Like your page, when did all of a sudden Uh, you go from like 70 to like you woke up and you had a million fucking messages all of a sudden, like notifications? I mean,
2: it was really it was really slow. I started to really think about, you know, making sure that I was coming out with content on a daily basis Um, and whether that was creating my own or like some nights if I felt inspired and I'd sit there and I'd find a bunch of cool templates and I'd make, you know, 15, 20 memes at once. And then I knew that I'd have them throughout the week and then I'd have like different folders and stuff like, all right, I'll run this then. Or like, you know, this is coming up or paying attention to, um, you know, current events and being able to relate things that people just read about and turning that into something funny. Um, you know, and I do have a problem. I mean, a lot of times something tragic can happen and my first thought is like, how can I make a joke out of this? You know? And unfortunately, I mean, bad attention or good attention it's still attention so it still drives people to the page so it started to slowly rise um and then i started to network with a bunch of other pages i mean there's a lot of great creators on there that will make like little meme group chats with like the other people who were uh admins at different pages and then we'll send like a template that we like and somebody else will come up with a caption or you know reach out to I like to reach out to smaller pages and be able to help them. So I'll find like a meme page that has, you know, 20 or 30 followers and only a couple of memes. up. and I'll send them a message like, yo, keep it up like great page. You know what I mean? I love this picture. Or There's been times where I've literally made a meme, not watermarked it and sent it to a small creator and be like, post this on your page and put your watermark on it. It'll do well. I'll reshare it for you you know, and try and help people out. Because when I was doing it, the only person who was really supportive of me was Nick, who was running that page. And I looked up to him because his memes get shared, not only just from him, but people will screenshot them. And you'll see them all over Reddit, you'll see them on Twitter, you'll see them on Facebook, you know, and I'm like, you know, I want that to be me. And Nowadays, like that happens, like I'll go on Reddit, and like there's a uh drug memes subreddit, there's an opiate subreddit, and I've seen like my memes that other people have taken and reposted on there. It's a pretty cool feeling. You know, I mean happened, it was a pretty slow progression. Yeah.
1: What happened you with about- you recently actually with me, where yeah. you and I had been talking about doing the show, you know, we've been talking for a few weeks now. And my friend that, you know, we work with all the time because the United way in town has a thing called United in recovery. And they Uh do a lot of thing on harm reduction in town. And, um, we became friends with the girl that heads that up early on. And she's always here right now. We're putting together like a new year's Eve sober event here where we're going to be live on Facebook and shit and doing everything. We have live entertainment here and all that. And, um, she we always send each other funny memes and shit like on instagram and she sent me a fucking reel of you really And had no idea you know what i mean and like i was like um yeah he's supposed to do my show like next week she's like are you fucking kidding me like how do you know i'm like we're both from jersey so we made friends real fast like because she was on my show in september um yeah like a week before my birthday yeah so no shit she came right before my birthday yeah olivia is her name there's only like four live interviews i've done my wife and this girl olivia and actually next week all three of us are sitting down for you know an episode together to talk about stigmas and harm reduction and all that kind of shit so because obviously it's so funny because you the stigmas don't change right like you were talking about it and probably didn't realize it. You mentioned your brother earlier and how you had the stigma against your brother. And in addiction, we had stigmas against each other in addiction where we, you know, we were like, Oh yeah, he's a junkie though. Cause he does that. And I do this. So I'm not, and yeah. now we're sober and now we're working programs, but the stigmas are still out there because people are like, Oh, but you use Matt, you use cannabis. You, you don't believe in the 12 steps. You don't go to fucking meetings. You don't have a sponsor. You're doing it wrong. It's like, no, all of our addictions look different. So why should all of our recoveries look the same? All of our, and I don't mean our addiction substances were different. I mean, like, they look different. As much as you and I can be alike and have a ton of common, we couldn't be any more different, too. Yeah. And that's the whole point of why the recoveries need to be just like, as long as you're happy and your life's not unmanageable, that's all I fucking care about. Come to me and say your life's not, everyone gets caught up on that first part of the first step everyone that's not even been through the 12 steps will tell you the first step submitting it. Fuck off. You don't, you don't even know what's after that semicolon then, because that's the most important part of the step to me is that unmanageability that if my life's unmanageable, then I have a fucking problem. No matter if it's drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, girls, gambling, whatever it is legal or not legal frowned upon or not frowned upon. If my life is unmanageable because of it, it's a fucking problem. And I have to try to deal with it. Right. It's not always going to be drugs or alcohol. They were the solutions to our problems. We thought that they were the problems, but really we just had real life problems and they were the solution to all of our problems. So now you take them away and we still have real life problems. So I you can, have to be able to get I through.
2: can agree with you on that, but I also look at it um, like uh, there's issues that I face on my page because I tend to make a lot of jokes revolving around M.A.T., You know, a lot of like, I do, I personally like what I believe works for me doesn't work for other people. You know, I know people who are on maintenance. I know people who are off maintenance. I know people who do, you know, uh, cannabis therapy. I also know people who were addicted to benzos and, and opiates, and now they have a prescription for Xanax and they take it as prescribed. You know, that's your life for me personally. I can't do those things just because I'm I'm not like everybody else on myself, but I don't, I try and not sugarcoat things. Like when I'm in meetings, like I'm the person where if I know somebody is on Suboxone or somebody's on methadone, like, I don't want you chairing the meeting. Like you shouldn't be speaking in an AA meeting. You shouldn't be doing H and I, but like, that's, that's just where I come from.
1: And in yeah, and H and I,
2: in my personal opinion.
1: Yep. And H&I, I I agree with H&I, I I agree with because like I needed what 90 days to be able to go into a hospital and then five years to go into an institution. I think that was the rule in my old home group in California. Yeah, that's
2: crazy. I think here it's only a year.
1: Okay. It was, yeah, nine, it was three months for a hospital or five years for an institution. Maybe it was three. It was definitely multiple. My home group was in Santa Monica um and i can't remember like i don't have any rules for it here but at <laughs> my aa here we just started the home group here yeah. so like we don't even have a format barely cuz we literally just started up aa meetings like 2 weeks ago um we're going to do a back to basics in february where i have an old timer going to come in he's got like 30 some years and okay. we're going to run through the steps three steps a week and get the steps done within a month for anybody okay. that wants to come in and do the steps like a fast version like, the old-school way of back-to-basics, back, back to basics. like, I have the format somewhere over here, but, yeah, he's, uh, he's a good dude, he's gonna come in, but I'll let you go, man, We're, we'll talk again, obviously, you know, yeah, if you, if you don't already follow his socials, I'll drop them in the description, um, because you're fucking hilarious, like, I'm always fucking cracking up at your shit, but, Awesome, man. Thanks again for coming on the show. I know we talked for a while. <laughs> they're not seeing half the shit we talked about. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll come back for another time. Plus, guys, we go live all together all the time. Never on, like, any set times. But whenever I see him live and I'm not doing shit, I'll pop yeah. in and we fuck around and tell stories. And it seems to be funny. People seem to be laughing whenever they're in on our lives together. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll keep fucking around. I appreciate it, bro. Have a good night, man. All right. You too, J.D. All right. See you. Later. Later.